Welcome to Streams of Progress, where we bring you weekly conversations with many of the UAE's prominent leaders and thinkers. Each of our guests are actively contributing to the vitality of the UAE community and economy. Our goal on the podcast is to inspire you to drive progress in your professional and personal life. Hey everyone, this is Medrod, and today on Streams of Progress, I sat down with Ludmila Yamalova, founder and managing partner of LY Law. She is a U.S. qualified attorney licensed by the State Bar of California, having over 15 years of legal experience, six of which were in Silicon Valley. Ludmila is also regularly quoted by local and international media as a regional legal expert, including the Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, New York Times, Washington Post, and Bloomberg. Dubai residents might recognize her voice from the radio, as she's a frequent contributor to Dubai Eye. And she also hosts the region's first legal podcast, Logical, with LY Law. In this episode, Ludmilla allowed us to pick her mind and cover some legal questions would-be founders in the UAE have when setting up their startups. We also cover topics for those startups from abroad looking to expand into the UAE. So join us as we dive into the conversation. So we're sitting down with Ludmila Yamalova, managing partner of LY Law. Thank you for being on the show. It's good to be here. Thank you for the opportunity. Can you tell us a bit about your background? It's a complicated story. And at this stage of my life, it's a fairly long background. But in relevant terms, I am an American of Ukrainian descent. I grew up in what used to be the Soviet Union, which is now Western Ukraine moved to the States in 1992 when the Soviet Union was falling apart, moved to the West Coast and Oregon in particular, and um, went to university in Portland, Oregon, then moved to San Francisco, worked in management consultancy for a few years before going to law school in Austin, Texas. And then throughout law school and after law school, I was based uh, part-time in uh, the Bay Area. Uh, so my summers during law school, I worked for various law firms in the Bay Area. And um, after graduating, which was a while back, I moved back to San Francisco and was working between Palo Alto and San Francisco offices of what became DLA Piper. A year before, during my summer, it was uh, the peak of the dot-com boom. So most people were interested in doing everything dot-com related. And uh, that was a very hot market by the time I graduated a year later, by the time I actually came to work full-time, the bubble had burst, and it was much carnage. And those, all those um, previous interns who had opted to do commercial and corporate work in the tech space were basically left out of work. I had, uh, not sure why, but I had chosen to do litigation, and so litigation was uh, at its peak at the time. So um, there were very few opportunities available at the time, but I was gainfully employed because uh, all those previous startups and uh, and commercial and corporate offices and businesses uh, were now either going through bankruptcy or some form of litigation. So I started doing litigation plus bankruptcy, and that was kind of my few um, years of practice. We're focused on, and because we were still in the thick of uh, of the Silicon Valley, uh, it was mainly based on IP, intellectual property, so technology. So um, at DLA, we had pretty big cases, so we worked on uh, big technology cases, uh, focusing on patent litigation, copyright litigation, and trademark litigation, and then obviously bankruptcy. So that was sort of the start of my career. And then a few years after, uh, a client of the firm had recruited me to become an associate general counsel for a publicly traded company, a fiber optics company called Finisar. And the uh, the general counsel used to work at DLA, and I used to used to be my boss there. And then so when he went to Finisar, he had brought me a few years later, and um, so I started managing a legal department and this publicly traded company, and it was an interesting time because this was, I think, 2005, which was a very tough time in the Silicon Valley. And uh, most of my colleagues at DLA thought I was jumping on to the sinking ship because it was a technology company. So many technology companies at the time were closing down and uh, declaring bankruptcy. And here I was uh, jumping from a solid law firm platform onto what seemed like a sinking ship but I did it, and it was a great opportunity because because of, of all those factors, I had a lot of opportunities very early on in my career. 
to ultimately oversee a legal uh, department of a global company. And so, and we were focused on technologies, fiber optics. So we had uh, manufacturing facilities in Malaysia and China and Thailand. So I had the opportunity to visit all of those countries for work and also the EU for to register and, and litigate patents and, and other types of um, IP. So it was a very interesting experience very early on. And uh, life was good. I was based in San Francisco and working for Finisar. I'm having a great time, except that um, I was still quite young in my own mind and wasn't really quite ready to settle down doing what uh, I was doing at the time in the long run. It was an opportunity for me to visit the Middle East. This was 2006 I think six or seven that I came here for the first time to visit. I'd never had any interest in the Middle East and um, came to visit and realized how close it was to the rest of the world and traveling is something I've always wanted to do in my life. And being based here uh, seemed to um, at least have the possibility of opening up all these opportunities to see the world. So I, um, I moved from San Francisco to Dubai in 2008, thinking I'll stay here for one year and go back, travel in that one year and um, sort of pick up where I left off a, a year later. Well, that was 11 years ago. That's the Dubai story, right? <laughs> Indeed. So why exactly did you leave Finisar? Well, I actually did not leave Finisar. I moved here and I was still working for Finisar for about a year. And I continued to oversee our legal department from here, which in many ways was a lot more practical than being based in, on the West Coast because we had offices in Malaysia and China and, and Europe, and time-wise, it was a lot more convenient to, to do things from here. So for about a year, I continued to work for Finisar, but, being, but I was based here. So I moved to Dubai just physically uh, because it was an opportunity. And um, so I did that for about a year, but it wasn't going to be sustainable because just we didn't have, Finisar did not have presence here other than me, and they didn't have plans to set up a branch here. So, and then in, in the meantime, things were booming here, and this was 2008, money was falling from the sky. Uh, the place was uh, it was kind of going through its own uh, version of a dot-com boom. It was just here was a real estate boom. And when people were finding out that I was a lawyer, uh, as is the case everywhere in the world, uh, people have questions. And, hey, can you help me do this contract? Can you help me do this? And, and um, so I felt there was an opportunity to provide legal advice to basically those who are based here. And I started looking into how to set up my own firm. So it's truly just being in the right place at the right time. And the opportunity ultimately presented itself. And so I thought, ah, oh, also because I, I speak Russian, and at that time there's a lot of Russian-speaking investors here. So I have a very Russian name, and I speak the language, and Russian, just like so many other nationalities, prefer to obviously do business in their own language. So I immediately had a fairly healthy stream of client base just because of that. And so that was kind of the starting point of my practice, and that is uh, doing more real estate-related work, and um, in particular for the Russian-speaking investors. But um, I, my, my training in the Silicon Valley was all IP and uh, litigation, and patent litigation in particular, especially at Finisar, I managed a number of uh, high-profile patent cases, patent litigation cases. So uh, there was this uh, idealist in me <clears throat> in the beginning wanting to do IP here and um, ultimately I realized this wasn't really quite ripe for that sort of legal practice and uh, then what was driving the legal market at the time was all basically real estate related so my practice started focusing on real estate and then when the bubble here burst it became all about litigation and dispute resolution. I want to just go back to Venezuela. So you were doing a remote working before it was hip. Were you managing a team back in the States? Yes, I was I was basically the definition of hip. Uh, no, it was actually quite the remote working uh, was hip in the Silicon Valley back then. In the fact, I was managing our offices, our, our departments from the Silicon Valley. The departments were based in Malaysia and Shanghai and in Thailand and, and in Europe. Um, so back then already it was more or less hip. 
and because again, this is the Silicon Valley, so they're kind of the trendsetters in, in all that's hip, or so they would like to think. Uh, so it was it was not uncommon, and also because it was a global company, so many of the employees were on the road so often, and because we did, I managed a number of litigation projects at Finisar at the time, so I was basically most of the time embedded somewhere else, either with um, that uh, council in in, you know, in Utah or council in Atlanta. So it was sort of working remotely was the thing of of that era. When you started setting up here, it was mostly around real estate. So how was that transition from the IP side to real estate law? It, it, there isn't really much of a transition, I have to tell you. I tried to, to focus on to do uh, focus on IP and do some IP, and there were um, there were quite uh, when the market was hot, when the market was booming, um, there were a few opportunities to do IP work, in particular with regards to copyrights and trademarks. So, for example, Porsche was uh, there were, believe it or not, there were discussions at the time for Porsche to have its own building. Well, it would only a building that would carry the Porsche name, and so there were discussions. This wasn't particularly my project, but it was something that I was well familiar, familiar with, but I'll just use it as by way of example. And so in that case, um, the idea was there was a requirement to have an IP agreement, a licensing agreement, where Porsche was ultimately licensing its uh, name for the building. But there wasn't quite, the market here wasn't quite understanding the idea of paying uh, ongoing licensing royalties uh, for something that they thought they would would own. So the expectation here is that I pay uh, a sum of money and it is now mine. And uh, the whole licensing idea of an ongoing uh, sort of royalty payment was not quite um, it was not quite um, feasible, and ultimately that particular project did not go through exactly because of that. So that's just an example of um, so there was an interplay between IP and real estate, but because of that, it was a challenging practice one and two that didn't last very long because shortly thereafter the the real estate boom ended and um, it was all just basically damage control Um, most businesses here were in one way or another linked to real estate so even if you were in advertising you were linked to real estate market if you were in publishing you're linked to real estate market uh, so um, in one way or another, it was all kind of real estate driven. But then it was about litigation and dispute resolution. And that, obviously, I had experience in. This was a new market, and I did not know. I mean, now looking back and being frank, I did not know much about the legal system here. What helped me is that this is a new country, and it was even newer then, and the whole legal system was fairly new. And uh, there wasn't much precedent or many laws that I needed to spend years learning. So it, it was um, it was possible and became possible to basically learn within a fairly short period of time. Also, what was interesting at the time is that the whole legal practice was even newer only because culturally this is a part of the world that um, resolve disputes um, outside of a formal court process. And that's just culturally, this is the practice that they, the, sort of the, the Arab culture prefers, and that is amicably settling disputes in their own, um, their own, you know, perhaps over a shisha or a cup of tea. And uh, so that was why not many cases actually went to court, because people just uh, resolve disputes on their own, one. And two, at that time, um, a sort of promise uh, or a word meant a lot. So there were not many contracts that were uh, that were concluded on the basis of which um, ultimately businesses were formed, let's say, and partnerships um, were formed. And um, so there weren't really many breach of contracts because there were no contracts. So this was, I mean, that was just a culture. It was a great culture because the word meant everything. And so things were done on the back of a paper napkin and just a handshake. And it meant a lot. And it worked except when it stopped and when the economy changed and the market changed and all of a sudden money became uh, an issue and shortage. Uh, so uh, the practice changed and that's when uh, then businesses were more keen now on learning how to do contracts and draft contracts and, um, and do things more in a formal way and that is going through court. But because of all that, the legal system, the legal practice here was not very in-depth so for someone coming in with just a lawyer coming from the States, even though I had no idea about the practice here, it wasn't so complicated for me to learn. So over the years, I 
sat down, opened up the books, and tracked down those English versions of the laws and read the laws and and learned. And I think back then in 2009, 2010, the rewrite laws weren't what they look like today, right? It was still very early stage of dispute resolution even between tenants and landlords. Well, yes, the RERA, if my memory serves me right, and RERA stands for Real Estate uh, Authority, it was not even, re- I think it was formed in 2006, and um, it started introducing laws and decrees, and those laws and decrees were rolled in gradually, and um, there was always um, a, a period of time by which parties were required to comply with those laws, so they did not necessarily become effective immediately. So let's say the escrow law, and that's the law that was uh, supposed to protect investors' money by uh, requiring all the investments to be paid into a formal escrow account of a developer. So that law was introduced in 2008, but it actually didn't really quite come into force until mid-2009. Well, by that time, things were, it was a little too late. But that's just an example. So you're absolutely right. I mean, and there was no requirement. I think it was the same escrow law that um, that introduced the requirement that any kind of off-plan contracts had to be registered with RERA and the government. But once again, there was a grace period for developers and parties to actually go and register their contracts. But until then, there was just this trading of, of paper contracts. And uh, there wasn't a central registry to actually keep track of all the contracts and keep track of all the properties. So it was a bit of a wild, wild east. And what does LY Law focus on now? Your area of practice is beyond just real estate and dispute resolution now, right? Indeed. So we have evolved uh, along with the economy uh, as um, it's been now 11 years since uh, since the market turned. And um, we've all the real estate cases and the real estate uh, dispute resolutions that happened basically already either happened and concluded or at their final stages. So the market since then has obviously evolved and kind of reinvented itself. And the, and, and the UAE, being true to its uh, spirit, continues to reinvent itself. And there's a lot more focus now on, other, uh, on diversifying the economy and other types of businesses. So as a result, our practice has evolved as well. We're a general practice firm, uh, but it was a small firm, but we sort of operate under the model of the lean, mean fighting machine. Uh, but we are a full-service firm, and we provide services, perhaps our specialties, corporate advisory services, and that uh, includes setting up companies and, and helping businesses manage those um, companies along the way, be it by structuring their employment practices, employment contracts, uh, or negotiating their leases and um, helping with their employees' visas, and then obviously obviously drafting contracts and helping with various corporate transactions along the way. Uh, so that's a corporate advisor practice, which is what I, I did at Finisar as Associate General Counsel. So that's perhaps um, the area of practice that we um, we like to continue to develop more. And with more businesses, um, diverse businesses setting up in the UAE, that's obviously an area that is continuing to develop. Uh, we also do a lot of employment because, let's face it, the UAE, it's, it's all about employment and real estate. And so those are our two other core practice areas because all of us here, a majority of us here, can only be here if we're employed uh, or if we're employee. And so therefore, employment is always a very hot topic. And it's a very multifaceted topic because it starts from if we represent companies of helping draft employment contracts, advising corporates about what it means to employ uh, individuals here in this country. And um, that's always uh, seems like always a, a, a kind of a challenge. Uh, and um, it's and then it goes to helping manage those employees along the way and and creating employment manuals to allow employers or companies to manage the employees as per the UAE law and then goes to terminations and and from the other side we also represent employees who are being terminated so everything related to employment and then obviously employment disputes and that includes the local courts uh, as well as the DIFC courts and also arbitration and so that's employment. And then there's real estate. Uh, real estate, once again, is another hot topic and which will always be... It's Dubai, I think, will always have real estate. Well, all of us have to live somewhere. So we either rent, 
uh, we rent places for us to live, or we rent offices for us to conduct business, or we invest in real estate uh, and then rent it out. So once again, real estate is, we all have to have a place to live. Because of that, it's always... uh, a popular subject, and that's also one of our core practices. We've recently we've also been doing a lot of family law, and that's um, kind of an offshoot. And I'll tell you, I would have never thought that we'd um, I would ever really dab in that particular practice area because that's not it's usually a very specialized area of law but here because it is such an expatriate community when people come to you and so many of our clients are not really based here or not based here full time so when they come to you and they build a rapport they want to be able to come to you for all sorts of other advice and i will tell you this is actually the old-fashioned model of uh, a practicing lawyer back in the old days and it wasn't even that old but perhaps 20 or so years ago these general practitioners were kind of the model that um, existed in the market and that is you become a family lawyer and clients come to you for everything so we basically are that now and because of that our clients will come and will ask us to help them draft a will to to figure out how to structure their estate for the purposes obviously of of inheritance um, we'll have requests about marriages and how to uh, how to legalize marriages here better and how to protect and you know to, to create the sort of setup allowing these marriages uh, from a legal uh, standpoint and regarding wills it's also relevant to the ue how it would apply to their real estate how does that transition it's very important because there is a conflict of laws in the ue between uh, between a law that allows for inheritance purposes for example allows uh, expats to choose the laws of their countries, non-Muslim expats, uh, to choose the laws of their countries to apply to their estate. And then there's another law, that specific law, particular law, that um, uh, according to which all immovable property, i.e. real estate, is subject to Sharia. So here you have a conflict of laws, and it's because of that, It's if, even if in the past, if you had a will that included your real estate, it was uh, at least a fairly strong school of thought was that your real estate would be taken out of the will and it will be distributed as Sharia because of that other law. And because of that, the DIFC, which is one of the free zones in the UAE, uh, in Dubai in particular, and has its own court, has its own legal system that's modeled against the English uh, common law system, uh, they developed a mechanism or a center allowing non-Muslim expats to register wills which will be inclusive of their real estate. Uh, so there is now a regulation that allows for, uh, for specifically for real estate to be included, and there is a certainty that that, uh, that that particular asset will be protected and will be distributed as per the wishes of the the person who is drafting the will. And since then, that particular practice has expanded further, and it now includes Ras al-Khaimah assets, and the DFC is now looking to expand it even further to all of the UAE. So yes, yeah, so there is a significant interplay here, because, and I'll tell you from experience also, which, which was very interesting interesting because so many expats here, those who are based here or who were based here and those who were not, had just tremendous, tremendous exposure to real estate. And so few, if any, really at the time actually thought about what happens in the event, obviously, somebody passes on. And so very few people actually provided for that. Very, there were very few wills. As much as, as, as much as they were invested and as much as they were exposed, there was very little thought about um, actually protecting for the long haul. And it could be because this was a new city, this was a new economy, new market, and people were investing sort of with more short-term uh, plans and they weren't really thinking of staying here long term. But as you mentioned earlier, this is one of those places it just sucks you in, and you <laughs> you think you came here, you come here for one year, and eleven years, you're still later, you're still here, and that's been happening to many more people. And so now, over the years, there's been the realization: okay, now we need to put in some long term plans. And there was one practice you didn't mention, or not practice, but. Uh, one thing you do that you didn't mention is that you actually run a podcast, logical podcast, and I think it's the MENA's first regional legal podcast. Well, there's actually, so there are many more practice areas that we do in addition to that, criminal being another one, but it's because of that, because it's a, it's a, we're a full service uh, firm and general practice firm. And I have been doing the same thing here for 11 years, and it's a fairly small place. So I've seen, for the most part, variations of kind of the same type of issues. And um, as as sort of a few of my my new team, my two new team members, as they've joined, 
they've kind of realized that we know a lot and that we've done a lot and that there would be tremendous benefit to share it with the broader audience and share it in a way that is accessible to them because let's face it we are not a nonprofit, so therefore we charge for our services and not everybody can afford to pay for our services not everyone necessarily needs to um, engage us or anyone else um, to uh, for all of their matters but yet there is a need for information there is a need for advice uh, well i've sort of always known that i used to draft a lot of articles but time is limited and also I now have two children so it's you know time is even more limited and so um, I was very blessed and had no idea that I'd be that blessed when I was hiring these various individuals but in particular I have two team members uh, uh, who uh, first was Hanan uh, who who basically came to me and said let's launch our launch our first podcast and I didn't even really know what podcast was to be honest with you because <laughs> again I'm a different generation and so there was her brainchild and her idea was uh, let's um, we have knowledge we have the know-how and um, and I you know, this is this generation her generation is uh, it's a different you know, different mindset um, of sort of very young and vivacious talent um, that for whom technology is much easier and sort of it's just a, a matter of, of life. So it was her, and plus she's a kind of an avid reader and avid podcast listener herself, so it was her idea to let's, let's do our own podcast. Nobody else has done it. No one else has it. Uh, we have a lot of content. We have a lot of, there's a lot of requests. There's a lot of need out there in the market. People know you already. Because I have been doing the Dubai Eye radio show for the I last... I think Dubai time. residents know or have heard your voice before. Well, I've, it's been 10 years I've been doing that for more in, in one format or another. So we had a bit of a kind of a leg up, if you will, at least in terms of brand recognition. So it was Hanan's idea. And then she being her generation, so she knew what technology needed to be put in place to create the um, sort of the studio, if you will, the makeshift studio to start doing our podcast. So... It was, um, and she worked on me for a good year, probably, to try to organize me and invest in the setup and come up with topics. She was really, she's very, um, she's very diplomatic, but very uh, convincing in terms of how she structured my schedule and my my mindset to start actually recording. And then by the time we started recording and we had our whole setup, uh, we, um, I, I, once again, I. I to my surprise, uh, uh, one of the other employees I brought in, uh, another very young but um, capable and technologically savvy mind, Zaid, uh, he in fact um, studied or took some courses in digital editing uh, or whatever the proper terminology is. And so he knew exactly how to edit uh, the, the podcast themselves or the recordings. So Hanan came up with the concept and the technology to start recording and Zaid came in at the opportune time and he didn't come to do this he came to to practice law <laughs> but in addition to his uh, analytical skills he had this other interest in audio in the, production in audio production so he started editing so that became basically our studio and our team Hanan with uh, this is her brainchild and Zaid with his technology expertise and me with my knowledge of of the law and the practice here so that's our little studio our little team and uh, yes and Hanan has done her research and we've we've had this confirmed several times that we are the Middle East um, first and only for now legal podcast. Great. Speaking of topics, I want to ask you a few questions our listeners tend to have, especially those maybe from abroad thinking of coming to Dubai, certain things we hear about how practices are here. So one of the first questions is, what exactly is the difference between a mainland and a free zone license? Because people hear these concepts that I need a partner who's 51% and they're going to take over 51% of my business. What, what does that mean? It's a very important topic and um, a relevant question. And one that is, uh, is, is, is multifaceted. Uh, so, but the general rule in the UAE is that all businesses re- uh, have to have a local partner. That's the general rule. 
and the local partner, meaning 51% ownership of a company. When you have 51%, that's a majority shareholder. So that's the general rule. And then accept. So they're in their exceptions to the general rule. And even within the authority that licenses these, well, they're called often referred to as LLC or limited liability companies. And the authority that licenses is called the DED, Department of Economic Development. Even under that authority, there are certain companies that do not require local partnership. And in relevant terms, they are what's called the sole proprietorship. And sole proprietorship is basically a company that's owned, that can be owned, let's say, 100% by me, but only certain businesses qualify to be set up as such. Uh, for example, if I wanted to open a restaurant, I can open a restaurant in my own name under DED. So this is not a free zone, and I'll come back to the free zone shortly. But um, so this is what's called the mainland, or often referred to as the mainland. So you can practice on the mainland without having to have a local partner, uh, but you cannot have other partners because it's called sole proprietorship. So you can only own that company 100% as as an individual. Only certain businesses qualify, but the biggest risk is that sole proprietorship have an unlimited liability. So, in other words, all my personal assets become subject of... Um, They're liable. Yes, I'm liable to the extent of my own personal assets. So if there is, let's say, a dispute with the restaurant and there is a court judgment against the restaurant, then the claimant can reach my personal assets to cover the judgment. So it is it is quite exposed in that sense. So that's, that's the mainland concept. Now... Over the years, the UAE government and Dubai in particular, Dubai was the first emirate that led this initiative, if you will, started setting up these um, free zones within basically the emirate of Dubai. And these are geographical areas where different laws applied for purposes of company incorporation. And uh, in relevant terms, it's basically the main difference between a DED or the mainland and the free zone is that now you could own businesses as an expat um, 100% without the requirement of a local sponsor, and they could be owned in different um, in different fractions. So you could have multiple partners, and, and you would also be able to enjoy limited liability. So these were called the free zones. And then as Dubai was developing, many more of these free zones were set up. So one of the first free zones was the JAFSA free zone, and that's the Jebel Ali free zone that's the, the the port and one of the world's largest ports and that's um, so it was set up as a free zone to obviously incentivize big companies and manufacturing facilities or manufacturing companies to set up here and and open up warehouses uh, so that the you know the Nestle's of the world, the Florovskis of the world. And um, so that's kind of where they were set up originally. So that was the first free zone. And from there on, many other free zones followed. So Dubai still to this day enjoys the largest number of free zones. I think our last count was about 20 plus something free zones. So that's that's the free zone. But the difference is often people refer to free zone as offshore, but it's not offshore. It's actually onshore. It's just that um, there are certain limitations as to what these onshore companies can do. If you're in professional services, their limitations are not really that significant. But if you are in trading, for example, you cannot be in the free zone and trade outside of a free zone. So that's why there are still certain businesses that still have to be set up under or on mainland because of the nature of the activities um, in which they practice. Um, so, and then since then, other emirates have also introduced their own versions of free zones. And um, this is a, a concept that's quite uh, common now in the UAE. And there are many, uh, many options uh, for, for investors to set up. Now, one of the biggest... I guess, sort of differences of doing business in the UAE compared to, let's say, in the US, which is where I came from, is that any kind of business activity actually requires incorporation. So it requires that you actually have a legal entity here to do business. In other words, I can't start providing legal services from from my own, yeah, yeah from my own garage or from my own apartment, uh, um, and I can't just rent an office uh, as me, Ludmila. I have to have a legal entity to allow me to do this, and so that means that you need to have a license, and a license. The the cost to obtaining a license in the UE are very different from what they are in most other parts of the world, uh, and um, uh, so we're talking about several thousand dollars license startup fees just to open uh, just to have the license and then you have similar ongoing fees on, on an annual basis so in other words 
it's not just a matter of I set up a license and now I have this license for the next 10 years, which is the case in a lot of other countries, in particular the U.S. Here it's um, you pay about $10,000 to set up an, a license and then you pay, depending on the nature of your activity, another three to plus uh, $20,000 a year to support that license. Uh, furthermore, to have a license, it has to be properly licensed. You can't just set up some a consulting because it's cheapest way to set up and then do trading under it. So it the has activities to be within the license. Correct. The activity has to be a specific activity. And then the other requirement is that most companies, most of these licenses also are required to have an office registered to that license. And that, and that office has to be exclusively registered to that company. So it's not it's not that you and I can rent an office together and, and use that office to register our multiple licenses, businesses. multiple businesses. So basically each office or each license um, has to, it has a requirement of having a, an individual office registered to it. Does that also play into the real estate boom where now every entity needs its own office? Absolutely right. So, and that's why the real estate will continue to and will always be a, a very important uh, practice area in this in this country and so yes so therefore every business and for the majority uh, businesses that um, that is set up here must have its own office uh, be it in the free zone or outside of a free zone but yes so you need to either rent an office or um, or buy an office so it continues to play and furthermore it's not that the, so the size of the office also plays into the size of your company so there is a correlation there so the more employees you have the bigger office you must have square feet basis Exactly. It's um, about, about I think, 100 square feet per person. So if you have 100 employees, you need to have an office to, to accommodate that number of employees. So it's not that you, you can just find the smallest office and then have thousands of people working for you. So the bigger, the bigger your headcount, the bigger is your office. So obviously that plays into um, the, the business expenses. So I have a question about that. What if, hypothetically, you're a U.S. software provider? And you wanted to sell your services here online. You're just a SaaS. You're something that I can access online. Would that U.S.-based company officially or legally have to have a license here to sell their software here? Well, as um, lawyers are often known uh, to say, it depends. (laughs) It depends on the nature of activity. Um, So anything related to digital um, operations obviously becomes, is, is a lot more subjective. Uh, because it depends on the nature of the operations and the extent of it touching this particular market. So let's say if you are a software provider based in the Silicon Valley and all your clients, yes, you have UE clients, but they basically come to you and not you come to them and they make all your payments or the payments for your services uh, into your U.S. bank accounts and there isn't really much of you know, that company that's doing here sort of on um, geographically in the UAE. Uh, then, well, there isn't really a need to register because you're really, technically speaking, not really doing business in the UAE. However, if you start visiting customers here more often and now you need to start taking payments from them uh, in, uh, let's say, local currency uh, or they start issuing you um, payments that can only be cashed in locally and um, you start approaching certain entities, uh, certain customers um, who may actually want for you to have legal setup here uh, or you start uh, needing employees uh, and even if they're just contractors you're just using them as contractors but there's a lot more in other words a lot more presence um, that is linked to actually being uh, physically based in the UAE that's when that line starts shifting and there's a lot uh, stronger argument that you now you need to have a local setup so if it's like let's say a marketplace model something like an uber or a cream or maybe you're using a contractor in the UAE and you actually need to pay them now as well for their services rendered. That's where probably the lines start to blur and you probably should think about. Exactly. As we know, all businesses are all about money. So whenever money starts um, becoming a sort of significant part of a business, which is being said the business is doing well, um, that's when most likely a local setup would be required, like the example you just gave with Uber. And earlier you mentioned specifically about the real estate, how this is a new country and the laws are evolving. Lately in the technology world, we hear of AI and crypto. And was it two years ago, the UAE announced their first minister of AI. So you would assume 
that they're looking at these regulations with this fresh perspective in terms of they don't have this backlog of past laws where there might be precedents where it could be an issue for issuing new laws or decrees. What's your take on, let's say, the Minister of AI or the, the fact that the UAE is looking to having these type of due diligence before coming to a specific law around it? Is this a step in the right direction? Is this progress for, let's say, AI-based laws? Because I don't know of any AI laws specifically. Well, I mean, let's face it. It's a very progressive move to have a minister of AI. I don't know that many other countries that have a position like that, uh, an official position like that at that level. Um, so it's very progressive. It's very forward thinking. And yes, the UAE has mentioned for a number of years now its sort of commitment to develop um, AI and to focus more on AI and crypto and kind of embrace the digital revolution to continue the sort of growth of the digital revolution. And, um, and therefore, obviously, the next progression of, of that commitment will be laws um, that would actually start putting in place some systems and, and framework uh, to, in fact, to in practice embrace all those initiatives. Uh, so now the commitment is there, the, um, the desire and the interest is there. And if you recall, I think his, Saudi Arabia is the one that gave it uh, the first country that gave citizenship yes. to a <laughs> Sophia, right? Sophia. So, so again, this is very progressive, very forward thinking. And it's much easier, as, as you mentioned rightfully, it's much easier for a country like this to implement new regulations because there isn't much of a, a sort of a history that needs to be rewritten by way of legislation uh, that kind of that may impede uh, embracing these these new technologies and therefore implementing new laws. Uh, so it's easier to do it here, also because of the way politically that the country is structured. It's it's easier for them to make a decision and make it happen in a shorter period of time. So the commitments there, interest is there. there have been signs, um, like the, in Saudi Arabia, of uh, things actually kind of playing in practice. Uh, also, in in some ways, if even before the laws are being implemented, we're already seeing signs of some of this commitment into place, such as, for example, the Hyperloop. Remember, the world's first Hyperloop is being developed here. It's, uh, well, it's being implemented here. It's being developed in the U.S. Uh, by Elon Musk, but it's, from what I understand, the first project actually uh, is going to be implemented in the UAE, and it's well at work. Um, so that's very, very exciting and very interesting. And in fact, uh, if you look around and com- and if you if I look back at the last 10 years of my time here, uh, this is the country that has embraced technology much more rapidly than any other country, including the Silicon Valley. So what I have observed is that some of the greatest technological ideas come out of the Silicon Valley, but they're not necessarily the first ones to embrace them and implement them. And that could be because, as you said, it's just from a practical standpoint, from a legal standpoint, it's more difficult for them to, to implement some of these new initiatives. Here, it's a lot easier. So the desire is here. And we have seen the, for example, the SALIC, right, the, the toll system, the payment of the parking tickets and the registration of and, and renewal of our licenses. Or the I mean, Dubai Now app. I do buy, uh, yes, I have the Dubai Now app. It's like an umbrella of all these different apps that basically bring kind of your interplay with the Dubai society, so the, you know, under one umbrella. All government services in one app. That's it. I mean, and it's a tremendous, a tremendous initiative, and it's been incredibly valuable and and helpful to us who live here because it's a tremendous sort of time saver. And I'll tell you, when I go back to the U.S., I, I'm surprised how much more backwards we are in that regard there. So a lot of the technologies, I mean, when the U.S. was still use of checks, the UAE basically, it's, it's all about money transfers and has been about money transfers, bank transfers long, long ago. And Apple Pay is my perf- is my favorite example right now. The UAE, everybody yes. takes Apple Pay. Everyone, even the smallest traders in Satwa and Dara and the, the delivery bikes and the pizza deliveries that come to your door, they'll come with uh, their own ATM machine or the credit card machine and they all take, uh, take Apple Pay. Well, I just came back from Portland in December and I kid you not, nine out of ten retailers do not take Apple Pay. Or maybe 19 out of 
you're 20. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's, I am, I'm so surprised. So there it is. So this, this country is certainly is eager and, um, and, and actually doing a lot about embracing technology. Now, from a legal standpoint, in terms of laws, um, that you, the laws are still being drafted. Um, there are decrees that are being passed and their initiatives are being announced and things are happening in practice. But from a legal standpoint, the laws are still being drafted, which is the right thing to do um, because laws are one so they're drafted, they're in place for the long haul, and so you want to make sure that they are that they are drafted with um, sort of the right mindset um, uh, in place. And I will tell you from experience, I it seems to me that the UAE in many ways is uh, operates as sort of similar to democracy in the way that it'll just put out an idea to the market and say, okay, we are thinking of introducing this law and then observes how the market re- reacts to that particular idea. And then it refines and uh, and continues to to draft and improve that particular law uh, based on the the comments it receives from the public before the law comes into practice. And same thing with what they're doing right now. So before they're introducing the laws, they're already introducing the technologies in place. And so seeing how those technologies are affecting our lives before they start drafting the laws uh, with, you know, with basically a practical experience in mind, which is the right way to do it if you think about it, because we really ourselves don't know how technologies are going to affect our lives and how and the interplay between us the humans and and you and technology and and the different professions and the different aspects of, of our lives it's like utilizing market mechanics to plan out of that's right speaking of the technologies so technology is one aspect if we want technology to be utilized in the city we require the talent as well and i believe it was last year they announced that we're going to have long-term visas because as we know, as residents of Dubai or the UAE, we're usually on two to three year visas and then we have to renew every three years. So I feel that the long term visas hint at an idea that you should think of the city beyond that one year that we said a lot of people come for one or two years and they think of leaving. You would know better who is able to apply for these long term visas, but it hints at people thinking of Dubai as a longer term. Maybe they will invest more, whether in their company or as in their own residential living in the city, but if you can elaborate what the long-term visa is. Yes, well, this is also, just before I elaborate, I'll just, um, for the benefit of those who are not familiar with the UAE system, is that for for anyone who wants to reside in the UAE, they are required to have a residence visa. It's called a UAE residence visa, and the only way to get the residence visa, well, there are different ways, but in relevant terms, is basically either being employed uh, or having your own company. And then you have an investor visa. And so these visas, depending on whether they're they're working for the companies or they have companies that are uh, licensed by either DED or Free Zone, can be anywhere from two years to three years. Well, as you said, two or three years is not a very long time when if you want to incentivize people to come here for the long haul. But historically, it's just because your visa is, is only for three years doesn't mean that after three years you have to leave the country. You can always renew the visa. Basically, as long as you have employment here or as long as you have a biz- business, you can continue to renew a visa. So it's never really been a very serious impediment from that perspective. The long-term visas uh, that are the, the new long-term visa that's being announced now uh, and that's being put in place is, um, for, as, as we understand it, is something else. It's basically allowing entrepreneurs, allowing individuals who have some creative idea to have basically to sponsor themselves. So to have their own visa. So let's say if you're in technology and you want to develop some sort of a software uh, before for you to be here and to continue to develop your idea, you have to basically work for a company and be sponsored by them. And therefore, you're limited to only doing work for them and you're limited to the visa that they give you. Now, with this long-term visas for entrepreneurs in particular, the idea is that you, as as an entrepreneur now, will be able to have your own visa, and it will be a longer-term visa, which will give you the incentive to want to invest here and stay here longer without the limitations of, um, of, of being attached to someone else. So that's the idea. And presumably, the details have not quite been announced yet, but presumably the cost for obtaining this visa uh, will be more affordable, therefore for incentivizing more real entrepreneurs to come here and try to, um, to to basically set up their own shop. So it's a huge development. And it's actually, and why it's also a huge development, because it is being rolled out on the UAE, on the national basis, not just Emirate-driven. Um, Speaking of entrepreneurs, uh, a lot of early stage founders tend to outsource their software development. And 
one thing that they're not sure about is when they're outsourcing, whether it's to Eastern Europe or whether it's to India or somewhere in East Asia, from the UAE, when they're outsourcing, is there any way they can protect their intellectual property being based in the UAE and contracting out these software development jobs? Well, register or protecting intellectual property in this region is still an evolving industry. Uh, but the best way to to protect your IP, let's say, if it's in particular if it's patent or even copyrights, trademarks, is to register it outside of the UAE uh, first. So let's say in the US or in Europe, depending on the um, the scope of your of your practice area. Um, so that would those would be the sure ways of protecting your IP at a, at a more global um, scale. Uh, that being said, if you are mainly focused on the region or sort of operating regionally, that's not going to be much uh, use to you because uh, in practical terms, if you want your IP to be protected here, you also need to, to register it and protect it in, in the region. And uh, you have the obviously the UAE and you have the GCC. So if you want to register, let's say, a trademark, you need to not only register it in the UAE, you need to register it in all the individual countries that fall under the GCC. So, And if it's the countries, the other Arab countries outside of GCC, then you need to go to each one of these countries individually. So in commercial terms, it's very, it's, it can be very pricey. It is very pricey. So for an entrepreneur, that's definitely a challenge uh, that um, they need to keep in mind. Uh, so you kind of have to pick your battles. You have to really study your market, understand your market, knowing that the cost is high and that the barriers to entry are fairly high by by virtue of having to register in individual countries and pay lots of money for each country. So just kind of identify your market, your customer base, and, and your most proprietary technology. And then depending on where you practice and what the technology is, perhaps start registering it first in other jurisdictions because... It's always possible to bring a case in another jurisdiction, even if you're operating your, your, your UE company and licensing out your, uh, your IP to an Indian company, but you can have in your agreement, you can have dispute resolution, let's say, in the U.S. And if your IP is registered in the U.S., there is another nexus to the U.S. jurisdiction. So there are different ways of doing it. And for now, I would say that's probably a more economical way for entrepreneurs to consider. Well, thank you. That was really helpful. If you don't mind, we'll transition to a bit about you. Do you have any role models you tend to look towards? You know, unlike many, I pr- probably don't have an idol. I will tell you, I've had a few a few people in my life, uh, my mentors who I consider mentors, that are my role models. My previous boss at Finisar, uh, Gabe Kralik, he certainly was my role model, and I think, and I catch myself often these days uh, running my own business similar to his style because I really benefited tremendously from his style. And he's the one who I thank and am grateful to for kind of exposing me to a much bigger area of law that made it a lot more interesting for me to practice law and ultimately set up my own law practice, which I, by the way, had never had any dreams about, was not even really interested. But it was basically by virtue of working uh, with him and under his uh, stewardship that I became a lot more excited about the practice of law. So he's probably my one of my role models in the sense of at least management style. I've had a, my, looking further back, I had my thesis advisor and in college, uh, Peter Steinberg, I still remember him. He's a political philosophy advisor. He was He's really inspired me. And um, in many ways, I look back to some of the advice he provided to me back in those days. I um, similarly, I had some other family friend, you know, Carl Spetzler, who runs his own management consultancy in the Silicon Valley, who truly was an inspirational figure in my life. So these are really people that have actually crossed my path, that I've been blessed uh, to have um, met along my life path, that are my moral models. Uh, my parents, for sure. Um, my late dad in particular. And, uh, you know, and then there are other sort of visionaries and successful figures like Warren Buffett. I mean, it sounds cliche, but the re- what I like about him most is is the team that he's built that's been with him for 30, 40 some odd years. So it's more about, again, his management style uh, than, than his kind of 
just sort of view on life and just kind of keeping low profile that I that I like. And then I like the the curveballs, the sort of the the kind of the mad scientist uh, leaders like Elon Musk. You know, and I think without these kind of uh, figureheads in in our lives, there would really be no progress. As as maybe as you know, as kind of how wild as they may be with some of their ideas, but you know, that sort of they're the ones um, who push the limits of, of, of comfort zones. Um, so they're not necessarily my role models, but they are um, um, figures, uh, um, I guess, leaders, um, certain practices, um, which certain practices I may perhaps I aspire to or, or admire. Inspirational in some way. Indeed. Are there any personal work habits you tend to do that you think are kind of unique to you? Well, unique would be perhaps... Uh, plagiarizing it because as I said I have had a few mentors in my life who uh, have um, I think have benefited from uh, by virtue of their management style which are my now my style and um, I think they're unique to me but they had the origins (laughs) attributable to someone else and that's just um, having a very strong team a strong team not in the sense of their resumes and their accolades but in terms of just the spirit that we share as a team and uh, drawing on everybody's talent uh, in so different talent and and embracing and encouraging uh, their own talents and their own aspirations and um um, sort of working inclusively so we don't really work as a hierarchy we sort of operate as a as a web if you will so we're all sort of connected and um, i'd say i'd like to think that that's perhaps more unique to me but it's all about the team it's all about the people yeah I've been running this business for 11 years and I, I, trust me I've learned so much and it's been a very very tough road it's been very challenging as as um, successful as it may sound from some of the comments I've made it's been a very very tough road and it's been difficult and I've bled and I cried and I fell and I scraped myself and I picked myself up and you know, wiped my tears and sort of carried on it's not just because you are on the radio and people know you just not mean you're making money and you're successful so i've learned a lot i've, I've used to bring talent straight from the u.s uh, from university of chicago nyu columbia you name it but I, I realize it's not about any of that it's about just having the right people it's all about your um, people as, as soft as it may sound but it, it is truly especially in professional services so if you have the right team you know, people with the right uh, energy and the right attitude Basically, the sky is your limit. I'd say that's probably my style. So what does your typical workday schedule look like then? Well, I have two children, quite young children. So therefore, my day and my life is dictated in many ways by uh, by them in my life in a good way. And so I wake up around 6.30 with my children and have a five-month-old, a six, almost six-month-old baby and baby girl Cleopatra and a three-and-a-half-year-old son Leopold. Uh, so I wake up early with them and I spend an hour with, with, with them and before Leopold goes to school. And um, then I come to work at around 8.30 in the morning. I work and then around 6 o'clock I try to be home, spend about two hours with my children before they go to sleep. And normally, because we live... Thankfully, this is one of the many benefits to Dubai. We live on the beach, and we love water in the family, and uh, we love pool water or seawater, any kind of water. So um, I spend those two hours usually outside with them. Uh, just yesterday, last night, we were picking crabs and uh, and clams and uh, oysters from the sea, and that's sort of what we did. And so that's my kind of ideal pastime. And then um, after that, I started to work out again so I go to the gym at 8 30 p.m and then uh, I go to sleep and then next morning I start all over again <laughs> and on the weekends it's once again it's basically just spending time with my children and my family and every so often which we try to do more often <laughs> is to for us as a family my husband and our children to travel so we love to go places. So Dubai is well located. Perfectly located, though the, our traveling habits have changed because my husband and I were both a bit of a travel junkies. So uh, we used to love going to places that are off the beaten path. We still do, but with minor children, you can't do that as much. You know, we've been to Yemen and, and Bangladesh and Iran and Syria. And so with, with kids, you, you have to, <laughs> to, to, to be a little more... 
uh, probably a little more conservative. So we're going to Sri Lanka. So that's basically. So we like we like to be active. We do swimming and skiing and uh, and um, paddleboarding. Uh, so as a family, we try to be active, be outside, and and see the world. So we'll transition to our rapid fire questions. Long short answer up to you. What book do you gift most often, or do you recommend most often? I will be honest with you, I have not gifted a book for a long time, so why make up a story? But I will tell you a few books that I, I, I probably not the best one to gift books because the books I like, not many people do. So I, I, I like, I don't like fiction, so I mainly read nonfiction. Some of the books that I really liked and enjoyed are not most people won't. Like I love Blood and Oil about the Iranian Revolution. I love the Zanzibar chest about uh, so the war in, in, in the former Yugoslavia. And um, the, one of the most interesting books I read recently was Midnight Furies about the, um, the division of India. Uh, so these are sort of the books that most people want. So historical, <laughs> historical time. The historical. I, I, living in this region, yeah. you just you become interested in so many other cultures and and um, histories um, because your friends are truly come from every part of the world. And I have visited many of these parts of the world. So it's um, the, you know, history was never my favorite subject. But having lived here and having built friendships with these different people and having seen these parts of the world, I'm now more just interested in how they came to be. So those are the books I read, but they're probably not the books most other people would want to read. There's some people who like nonfiction books. If you could post a non-commercial billboard on Sheikh Zayed Road, our main freeway going to Dubai, Abu Dhabi, especially with Expo 2020 coming, is there a message you would like people out there to know? Well, it's it's a trick question for a lawyer because we're not allowed <laughs> to post and advertise on billboards. Uh, but if I were, I probably don't have a catchy term, but it would be something about... Um, just embracing change very quickly because this place or perhaps would be something being the thick of the history in the making maybe that would be the logo I would um, love nice <laughs> I would love to, for others to see because my 11 years here truly have been a manifestation of living in the history in the making. I've seen so many laws uh, being sort of contemplated and then drafted and then introduced and implemented. I would like to think that I've left my own footprint on the sort of legal landscape in this country, sort of forming and evolving by virtue of practicing in different courts and making arguments in different courts and just kind of being part of the community. We are truly in the thick of the history in the making. So I would like the world to know that this place is still is still that in many ways. So I guess that would be my my billboard. Speaking of history in the making, we know Dubai does a lot of grand initiatives, some moonshot ideas. If Dubai could do a wish or dream initiative of your saying, uh, what would you like to see them attempt, even for like let's say Expo twenty twenty? Great question. You know, the sky's the limit in this part of the world, and they've. They've certainly been the land of superlatives in every sense. I'd say to leave, to use Expo 2020, to use it as an opportunity to create a, a landmark um, that will make this place a landmark for many generations to come. For example, and this is how I look at, at Expo 2020, is to create this, to make this a hub for sort of events, you know, global events. And certainly geographical position to do so. And uh, from the infrastructure standpoint, we are working on it to uh, to build facilities to host. Uh, and so that this will continue to be a hub that will bring uh, people from all over the world, be it for, um, for businesses, long-term businesses, or just pass-through conferences or events, and be kind of the gateway into, uh, continue to be a gateway into all things new and interesting. Uh, we've done that for the most part, but uh, you know, in, in, this, in this era, the minute you slow down, somebody else has outpaced you. So if you continue to embrace that, I think that will be, it's, it's a tremendous opportunity for place this small that is geopolitically based and truly a hotbed, but has been such an example of what's possible of bringing all these different, very, very challenging political aspects and historical and religious and um, you know, geopolitical into one and make it work. Uh, so I'd like, I'd like to continue to see it succeed. Do you have any last words of wisdom you'd like to share with our listeners? 
sure. I, I'd say if you want to achieve something, it may sound cliche, but truly don't expect things to work out in the short run. So success, true success, and not that I have necessarily achieved my, my dream success, but success comes with time and with a lot of, lot of hard work. Uh, so in, in this particular part of the world, um, often we hear a lot of success stories uh, and success stories that seem to spring up overnight. And I would say just um, I'd caution people when something is too good to be true, it is usually too good to be true. Uh, when somebody tells you that they're doing so well and um, it, there's probably another story to it. And, but, and the reason I say this is because I know as I've been building my own practice, I've, I've heard a lot of a lot of these kinds of comments and sentiments. Um, as I was struggling, I was just hearing everybody else, everybody else is doing so great. And it can be extremely demoralizing and extremely upsetting because you think, okay, everybody else is doing so great. What am I doing wrong? So I'd say for those who are trying to do a business here, just be patient and uh, keep your costs down and just truck slowly because um, taking on too much liability and too early on is uh, is extremely dangerous. And um, so if, if you have too much business that you can handle, that's a good problem to have. But usually businesses here are set up very grand with the big grand openings and only to close their doors a year or two later. Uh, so I'd say just be patient, be realistic. Uh, to it's not, it's not the wild, wild east. It's, if you want to succeed here, it's going to take you time, it's going to cost money, and it's going to, to happen with a lot of um, mistakes or pains along the way. And, it's just, and that's, that's how it should be, because if things happen too quickly, you don't appreciate what it really means to have a sustainable business in the long run. There's some real truth there. Where can our listeners go to learn more about LY Law and about Logical, the podcast? Sure. That's a very good question. Very important question. I hope the listeners do do this. Uh, so the best way to find us is through our website, which is www.lylawyers.com. And there was basically there's all the description about who we are as a firm, as individuals, and there's also a link to our podcast, but also our podcast, which is called Logical, L-A-W, Logical, uh, with um, L-Y Law. Uh, that's um, resident on Apple and Google podcast platform. And um, so those are the best ways of finding our podcast and, uh, uh, and about the firm. And obviously, physically, if anybody wants to come visit us, we're in Dubai and JLT <laughs> in uh, Reef Tower. But all those details are available on the website. So the best way is just send us an email or call us if, um, if we can be of help in, with any other legal issues. Thank you for being on the show, Ludmila. Thank you very much for the opportunity. It's been a pleasure, and uh, I hope we will meet again. Hey, listeners, let us know if you like this episode and send us any more legal questions regarding startups or investing in the UAE. And we'll ask her to join us again in the future to answer those questions. You can check out this episode's show notes on our website at streamsofprogress.com slash lylaw. We'd love to connect with you, so follow us on Facebook and Instagram or reach out via our website. If you can please take a few minutes to give us an honest rating on iTunes, this really makes a huge difference and improves our ability to reach more people in the UAE and beyond. We hope you enjoyed the show and look forward to seeing you next week on Streams of Progress.